millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Standing outside the besieged city, the princess made a small ask. Give me three sparrows and three pigeons from each household and my army will leave. The city could not believe how lucky they were to be getting away with such a small request. Not gold nor silver. No, all the princess wanted was their birds. They had no way of knowing that giving this seemingly demure princess what she asked for would result in the complete and utter destruction of their city and their people. Stay tuned to hear all about that on The Reluctant Historian. I'm Liz Lawson, and this is our reluctant historian, Dakota Lawson. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. So, if you love history, or you absolutely hate it, this podcast is for you. We'd like to begin by recognizing that we are recording on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement and recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. So, Dakota, what do you think this podcast is about? Bird watchers. <laughs> She plays wingspan. Yeah. Well, so I think that she's like, I haven't seen these Spiros. Sparrows? Sparrows. Sparrows. Sparrows of Pokemon. (laughs) Sparrows. I haven't seen these Sparrows uh, or whatever she's collecting. Sparrows and pigeons. Sparrows and pigeons. I haven't seen these. These are the last on my list. Please let me have them. Mm. And they give in because they're like, fucking bird watchers. (laughs) Get out of here already. The destruction of the city comes when this whole city is overrun by hipsters and bird watchers right so it's a metaphorical destruction of the city where it's like what does this city become we used to stand for something now we're just a bunch of fucking bird watchers and hipsters drinking our our mocha latte cappuccinos That's the one. or whatever yeah and am i on the nose not at all one? no okay <laughs> well yeah so today's episode is going to be about olga of kiev Olga of Kiev. Kiev. Hello, I am Olga of Kiev. Yep. Yep. That's the is one. she Russian? She, well, she's from a group of people that created the Russians. Were Russians built in the lab? <laughs> no, like their <laughs> ethnic group became Russians. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what's your golden nugget? Well, a couple weeks ago, I revealed to listeners that I finally learned how to read. That's true. And a couple days ago, I finished a book that is the longest book I've read since Harry Potter 7 in 2007. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. It was 550 pages, so not quite as long as those, but it's still since that. I've read a couple books since then. Is she thick? Is she thick? But I've read a couple books since then, but this one uh, is by far the longest since, you know. Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. You've Whoa. read a couple of books since 2007? Like a couple. Yeah, I don't read. Reading's for, <laughs> readings for nerds. <laughs> I've read a couple of books in the past three days. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, show off. <laughs> I don't like reading, and I've read a couple... Okay, no, no, okay. Let, let me see. I've read I read the 
uh, a series of unfortunate events books. So that's that's at least thirteen of them. Oh, actually, okay, yeah, there's like thirteen of them. Okay, they're great books. They're also very small, so (laughs) they're kind of children's books, but they're great. Okay, so I read those, and then I read just a couple like money books, and then a couple like inspirational books, you know, some like Jesus stuff. I read the entire Bible. I didn't retain any of it, but I was like, ah, I am a, I am a new Christian. Uh, I have two tasks ahead of me. Uh, read the entire Bible and immediately watch The Passion of the Christ. So those are the two things you have to do to become a Christian. Yeah, that's all. That's that's our barrier of entry. <laughs> watch watch uh, our Lord and Savior get um, brutally murdered. I thought you were going to say, watch our Lord and Savior Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, he's a... Uh, He's a he's a scheming. He's a fuck. bad person. Yeah, he's very so, anti-Semitic. Semitic. Yes. So, anyways, it's very exciting. Very good book. I really enjoyed it. Not the 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 book I just read. Not the Bible. The Bible is kind of boring. <laughs> Tbh. Uh, what is your golden nugget? Uh, so last week we were talking about Jurassic Park. Last yes. night we were watching Jurassic Park. We spared no expense. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! It is. So good. It like yeah. it held up. Oh yeah. And like also, so it was really interesting to me because I think I must have watched it a number of times when I was a youth, like a child, and then never again until last night. Because there were parts of it I was like, ah, oh, I don't remember this. Like the whole beginning. Yeah. With that guy getting killed by a raptor at the beginning. Spoilers, but okay. Yeah. Uh well, it's thirty years old. <laughs> um, forgot all of that, but then like the scene in the kitchen with the raptors, uh, beat for beat, I knew what was happening. Yeah, you so. <laughs> you were making the sounds of the raptor before they made them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you sound like a like a bird choking on a on a fish. That's probably <laughs> probably what a raptor sounds like. So yeah, uh, so yeah, that was super fun. I still loved it as much as I did the first few times I watched it. I thought it was even better. Than, yeah. uh, than what I remember. It, it and had a lot more meaning as an adult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was a lot more to it. And, you know, uh, Jeff Goldblum bringing up... Hot. The... <laughs> okay, <laughs> settle down there, uh, little young young teen. Uh, uh, I would have been like nine when it came out. Whatever. The... Seven. Yes. Okay. Which I, I think was, is worse. I was a year old. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyways, Jeff Goldblum brings up like, uh, you know, they were so focused on doing this like could we do this create these dinosaurs they never stopped to think you know should we right and it was like very like really poignant yeah very should you do this and stuff so uh yeah it was very good and it, it was a nice palate cleanser after we watched the matrix 3 yep which uh i thought was i hot. liked it i thought it was hot street trash mm. but and i most didn't really do. understand what was happening but yeah i enjoyed the wild ride we were on <sighs> yeah so it was a good palate cleanser anyways Truth. so Okay. So, um, this season, I've done a ton of episodes on, like, singular people. I haven't really talked as much about issues or, like, events that have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know why, but uh, I think there's only been two episodes where I talked about events. So, that would have been the sinking of the USS Indianapolis mm-hmm. uh, and then the Dolotov Pass incident. Well, no, we're not that far into the season either. This it's is like, episode seven. Yeah, that's not that much. Anyways. Yeah. So, anyways, we're going to be talking about St. Olga, also known as Olga of Kiev. Kiev? Kiev? Uh, here's the thing. I've always said Kiev in the past, and I okay. just recently learned that that's wrong. Oh, really? um, It's actually Kiev, so it's spelled K-I-E-V. Mm. Um, so up until this point, you've been a dirty racist, is well, what you're saying. No, I well, don't... I mean, it's not for you to decide if you're not a racist. That's, so. I guess, true. 
Uh, I don't know where. I, I and the other interesting thing is like lots of historians and news people have always said Kiev as well. So I don't know when we realized that was the wrong way of saying it, but yeah. here we are. So Olga of Kiev, Kiev. Olga of Kiev was a ruler in Kievan Rus, which was a loose federation of East Slavic, Baltic, and Finnic people in Eastern and Northern Europe from the late 9th to mid 13th century. They're really loose, like they, they like to sleep around. Yep. <laughs> the modern nations of Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine all claim Kievan Rus as their cultural ancestors, with Belarus and Russia deriving their names from this area. Olga is best known for her subjugation of the Drevlians, a tribe in the east. Subjugation? What does that mean? They, like, she made them her people. She was like, I'm your boss now. Like slavery? Mm. Or just, like, in charge No, they're, of... like, her sub. Yeah, they're her oh, subjects. Oh, okay. The Drevlians' name is derived from the Slavic word drevo, meaning wood and tree, because they lived in the forest. Very creative. <laughs> the Drevlians initially passionately opposed the Kievan Rus, According to a number of chronicles from the time, the Drevlians had their own princely ruler, but they did have to pay tribute to the Kievan Rus. So that's a big important thing to note. Um, the Drevlians didn't want to be ruled by the Kievan Rus. Um, in order to keep them away from them, they had to give them money. This tribute is mm. an important thing. So would you say that this Kievan Rus was a ruse? <laughs> yep. Yeah. There's was it. a group of people. Oh, was it? Or they... was it a ruse that's double down on that one (laughs) okay (laughs) olga's birth date is unknown it could be as early as 890 a.d or as late as 925 a.d olga was most likely of vargarian birth and sorry 800 Mm -hmm. she's she's that was a really this is a really old one yep (laughs) it's a lot older than a lot of the stuff we talk about yep uh veroningian is the name given by the eastern romans to the swedish vikings so olga was probably a viking Little is known about her life before her marriage to Prince Igor I of Kiev and the birth of their son, Svatislavus. (laughs) Svatislav, your favorites. Ah, hello. Uh, This is my son, Svatislav. No, Svatislav. Svatislav. According to historians, Olga was no more than 15 years old at the time of her marriage. Prior to the marriage, a couple of changes had happened to the political field in the area, most notably the consolidation of power in the region by conquering neighboring tribes and establishing a capital city in Kiev. This is the loose tribal federation that became known as the Kievan Rus. As I stated before, the Kievan Rus and the Drevlians had a complex relationship. The Drevlians were a neighboring tribe next to the growing Kievan Rus empire. The Drevlians had joined the Kievan Rus in military campaigns against the Byzantine Empire and, as stated, did pay tribute to the Kievan Rus. However, upon the death of Igor's predecessor, Oleg, they stopped doing so and instead gave tribute to a local warlord. And this was no good. (laughs) Giving tribute to a local warlord isn't good? Yeah, so giving them money instead of giving it to this king man. They're like, ooh, Mm. no, we're going to give it to this other guy. So here is the crux of the ruse. It's not actually a ruse. <laughs> I just wanted, I wanted to make you feel good. Thank you. <laughs> In 945, Igor set out to the Drevlian capital. Igor is Olga's husband. Okay. Igor set out to the Drevlian capital in order to force the tribe to start paying tribute again. Confronted by Igor's much larger army, the Drevlians backed down and paid him. As Igor and his army rode home, however, he decided that the payment was not enough and returned to seek more tribute. This time he took only a small escort with him. Sorry, is e- sorry, Igor's the warlord? No, oh, we don't know the name of the or- the random warlord. Oh, sorry, I thought he took tribute or is he getting money for the warlord? So, 
originally, yeah. the Drevlians were supposed to and did pay tribute to Igor and the Kievan Rus. Okay. And then they were like, no, we don't want to do that anymore. We're going to give it to this warlord. Oh, and Igor okay. is like, no, you can't. That's a No, you have to give me the money. So he's going right. back to be like, no, give me your money. Okay. Does Igor work for the king? Igor is the king. Igor is the king. Yeah. I'm going to write that dang down. <laughs> king. Okay. King Igor. Yes. So we caught up? Yes. Good. It's good to ask questions. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so he took his small escort with him. Upon his arrival into not the way you're no, I was just like, <laughs> oh, you know, I might get a little lonely on the road. <laughs> a small group of men with him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you might might get a little lonely on the road. <laughs> the, the, the small group of escorts are like, oh god, I hate this job. <laughs> it's always asking me to do his tent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Upon his arrival into the Drevlian territory with a much smaller group for protection, the Drevlians promptly murdered him. They murder- murdered Igor? Mm-hmm. <laughs> his band of escorts were like, thank God, <laughs> we're free from his tyrannical sex rule. <laughs> According to the Byzantine chronicler, Leo the Deacon, Igor's death was caused by a gruesome act of torture in which he was captured by the Drevlians, tied to tree trunks and torn in two. Quote, they had bent down the two birch trees to the prince's feet and tied them to his legs. Now he's the prince? Well, it's just confusing with what how they do their politics. So he's okay, he's so the he's, leader. He's the king, but he's also his own son. Okay, <laughs> I understand. That's not it. Own son. I'm writing that down. <laughs> okay. So he they tied these two birch trees to his legs. Okay. okay, okay. Then they let the trees straighten again, thus tearing the prince's body apart. Oof. Yikes. It, <laughs> yeah. It has been suggested that maybe Leo the Deacon invented this sensationalist version of Igor's death, taking inspiration from an account of a similar killing method in the Greek story of Sinus. So I'm going to tell you about that story because it was really interesting. Okay. Well, I just want to take a brief pause. Um, I find it interesting that King Igor, Prince Igor, his own son, whatever you want to call him, he did his own bidding in a way. Like he went to get the money himself, right? Yeah. Well, he took his army with him. Yeah, yeah, but I just find that interesting because later on in history, it was more sending subjects to go do shit for you, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So this was early enough that the king did shit himself. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I just, that's something I picked up from that. Good look at you. Look at me. Learning. Proud of you. <laughs> okay, tell me the story of... Sinus. Uh, sinuses. We're learning the history of sinuses, everyone. Yay. <laughs> so Sinus's story is that he would force travelers to help him bend pine trees to the ground and then unexpectedly let go, catapulting the victims through the air. Wait, uh, the, the person that helped him? Yeah. So he's a Greek guy. So yeah. Is this the original uh, inspiration for Punked with Ashton Kutcher? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> here, help me bend this pine tree. And then it flings them gotcha bitch <laughs> that's the one yeah. other versions say that he tied people to two pine trees that he bent down to the ground then he let the trees go tearing the victims apart which incidentally was actually a version of roman military discipline oh shit yeah so this is legit i was like that would be horrifying how does that work how does that fucking work i don't get it what do you mean i what? think we'll have to try it like where no how because i would be the one being the subject in this situation yeah but like if you are strong enough to pull the tree down, yeah. wouldn't your legs keep it down? Like, I don't, I don't know. So here's the thing. Frost giants. Oh. 
I think it was Frost. This guy was actually a frost giant, and that's why he was able to pull these trees down. Maybe. So. Yeah. So, anyways, there I give you a little history within the history there, the thank, sinus story. Thank you for teaching me about sinuses. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna His go back. His name was Sinus. Yes, mm. and he was a Sinus the Frost Giant. Writing well, he that has down. he has nothing to do with this story. I'm writing that down. I'm trying okay. to be att- attentive. Got it. Okay. Okay, so we're back to Olga. She's now a single lady, and she ruled. The- I'm a single lady. I'm a single lady. You you couldn't you, you when you wrote that you could have. You could have predicted I was going to start singing. <laughs> Perhaps. She now ruled the Kievan Rus. She now ruled. <laughs> she now ruled the Kievan Rus as a regent on behalf of her son Sviatoslav. What's a regent? Uh, oh, how can I explain this? So in medieval and a little bit further onwards, if because you know parents die. Um, Unfortunately, yes. Often they would die, like the father would die before the the son was old enough to actually be able to be a king. Like Mm -hmm. he would die when the kid was two. Yeah. So you would have somebody rule instead of the king or instead of the kid. um, And they called it a regent because they would only be like in charge of it until the son was old enough to actually make kingly decisions. So. Oh, so he was like an interim. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Well, no, Olga is in charge. Oh, sorry. Interim queen, whatever. So she was the first woman to rule the Kievan Rus. Interestingly, she had the full support of the Rus army despite being a woman, which attests to the great respect that she held among the people. Little is known about her tenure as ruler of Kiev, but the primary chronicle does give an account of her accession to the throne and her way of dealing with the Drevlians, which is the story I'd like to share today. A story that defies gender norms, societal norms, and basically just most norms at the time. Her reaction was one of pure carnage. What? Yeah, so after Igor got murdered. Oh, well, yeah, she would probably be pretty upset that her husband got torn in two by by a tree. tree. (laughs) The Drevlians assumed that they were dealing with just another demure noblewoman who could easily be scared and forced into marrying their own prince, Prince Maul. This to the Drevlians was a great idea, as not only would they be free from paying tribute to the Kievan Rus, but they would actually rule the Kievan Rus instead. The Drevlians then sent 20 of their best men, or matchmakers, to try and persuade Olga to marry the living symbol of her husband's murder. The, they, what, the living symbol? Prince Maul. Oh. Ooh. Is it like, oh, I'm picturing a game show or something like that. You know, uh, you know, uh, welcome to, uh, what would they, they call it in the back, back in the day? I don't know. Like a matchmaking show. You know what I'm talking about, right? I do, I think. Yeah, you think. I think I got where you're You know, going. it's like there's like three suitors behind oh. each each door, and then they have to ask like, what? Ca- if I was an ice cream cone, what would you do to me? And then he'd be like, I'd, I'd, uh, start, I don't know how to talk sexy. <laughs> I know you don't. <laughs> oh, this is, uh, this is going to be really interesting for the listeners to learn that I don't know how to flirt. <laughs> Which I've known for a long time. Yes. (laughs) Continue. Okay, so the matchmakers are there on behalf of Prince Maul to get Olga to marry him. Mm. They boated to Kiev to pass along Maul's message. When they arrived at Olga's court, they told her they were there to report that they had slain her husband and that Olga should come and marry their Prince Maul. Olga had no intention of marrying this man, but she wasn't about to tell them that yet. Mm. Instead, she had secretly vowed to repay this act of murder in kind. And then some. What we get instead is four epic tales of revenge on the Drevlians, whose existence, incidentally, lasts right up until the time they killed Olga's husband. 
So when these 20 matchmakers showed up on Olga's shores, they came in a boat. Olga tells them, your proposal is pleasing to me. Indeed, my husband cannot rise again from the dead. But I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat. Remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say, we will not ride our horses, nor go on foot. Carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried in your boat. Essentially, Olga was claiming that her people would not be in support of her marrying Mal. She said that she's not against it, but it's really her people who would be against it. So, to be able to persuade her people, the Drevlians should show how wealthy and powerful they are, and they should demand to be carried by boat, and that will prove that they are a good match for her. And she... Wait, was she scheming them? Was she tricking... She's tricking them in yeah. this? Okay, because yeah, she, she doesn't want to marry this dude, right? No, she okay. wants revenge. Of course. Revenge is a dish best served to Olga. Love it. <laughs> the Drevlians think this is a great idea, and so they agree to Olga's plan. However, Olga had a different idea for them. Do you have any guesses what she planned? <laughs> She's going to bore them with her bird watching. <laughs> <laughs> Look at my new hobby I've taken up. And then they'll just kill themselves. That's probably the right answer. Yeah. So while the Drevlians are back at their boat preparing to show off how wealthy and powerful they are, Olga tells her people to dig a massive hole in the middle of the courtyard at the city's fort. And the next day, the Drevlians sail up to the docks of Olga's city. When they get there, they tell the people that they will not go up the hill to the fort unless they are carried in their boat by Olga's people. And Olga's peoples respond, sure, of course we'll do that. Carried in their boat? Yeah. Like the boat lifted up? Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's not like a boat like you're thinking. Like, think of like a canoe, like a big canoe. Still, but they're they're in the canoe. Yeah. And they're like, how many people? 20. 20. Yeah. Seems like a lot. Well, I mean, it shows how powerful they are. Right. Does it? I don't know. I'm not a ruse. I don't know. <laughs> it shows how powerful they are by making other people lift them up? <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> Olga's men picked up the boat with the Drevlians in it, and they marched up the hill to the castle. The ambassadors believed this was a great honor, and I'm sure they were thinking they were going to get away with their scheme to make Olga marry Maul. However, when Olga's men got to the castle, instead of presenting the Drevlians to Olga, they promptly dumped them and the boat into the hole they had previously dug. It's said that Olga stood over them and said, this is what I think of your proposal, and oh. had them buried alive. Oh my fuck. They need a Ryan Reynolds figure to come save them. They do. Uh, wait, no. that Never mind. That oh. Spoiler alert for Buried. Uh, he dies at the end. Oh no, I haven't seen it. So you would think that that would be enough revenge, hey? Yeah, uh, well, you'd think, but she is vindictive. So. Olga sent word back to Prince Maul that she would accept his proposal, but only if the Drevlians sent a part of their good and great to accompany her back to the territory, <laughs> claiming that it was important for the proud Kievan Rus to see just how important this matchmaking was. Prince Maul was unaware of how the first diplomatic party had fared, mm. so he... Yeah, I, I... I expect if he knew, he wouldn't send people. <laughs> That's right. So he sent another party of men who were the best men who governed the land of Derevia. When they arrived, Olga commanded her people to draw them a bath and invited the men to appear before her after they had bathed. So this is an Eastern European bath. Okay, sorry, this is this bath is for Olga and Mal? Or Olga and who? Who's Olga's this bath a- for? <laughs> the new Drevlians that are coming there. The good and the great of Drevlia. Okay, so she's making, giving them a bath. Yeah, uh, it's not a bath like you're thinking of, though. It is a steam bath. Mm. Um, it's kind of like a sauna instead. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, the group agrees to this because who wouldn't like a nice relaxing sauna after a hard journey? So when the Drevlians entered the bathhouse, Olga had the doors locked and the bathhouse set on fire so that all the Drevlians inside burned to death. Oh, oh, fuck. You know, I feel like a way to do it. I don't know if this would be possible, but just to be like, instead of setting on fire and burning them alive, just turn up the steam so high and Mm -hmm. just making sure they could never get out Mm -hmm. and then just dying from the steam i feel like that'd be just a long if we were in a horror movie maybe yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i I guess (laughs) so again you might think that this was the end of olga's revenge but i would be wrong however it was not now olga sent another message to the drevlians this time ordering them to prepare great quantities of mead in the city where you killed my husband that i may weep over his grave and hold a funeral feast for him To the Drevlians and Prince Maul, it seemed like Olga was finally going to come to their city and accept their proposal in the flesh. Also, I'm thinking, like, are they not curious about what happened to the two parties of people now that just went to see her and just never came back? Yeah. But (laughs) whatever. They heartedly agreed to this idea, despite the fact that neither of the previous emissaries had come back to their capital city of Eskortstan. Eskortstan. (laughs) Olga gathered up her ladies-in-waiting and the men of Kiev, and they marched into Drevlian land. Now, when Olga and her group of followers arrived, they went to Igor's tomb, where Olga did indeed weep and hold a funeral feast for him. The Drevlians came to the feast as well and proceeded to drink heavily. It also didn't hurt that Olga had her servants go around making sure that any time a cup was empty, they would refill it. When the Drevlians had drunk so much that they passed out, Olga had her ladies-in-waiting go around and slit the throats of the Drevlians. She also went about herself egging on her retinue to the massacre of the Drevlians, according to the primary chronicle meaning that she wasn't above getting her hands dirty with the rest of them. It is recorded that 5,000 Drevlians were killed this night. Olga then returned to her home, Kiev, to prepare an army to finish off the survivors. Wow. Yep. And then she asked for the birds? I don't... <laughs> Just you wait. Okay, I'm like, I'm like trying to figure out where this is leading and where those birds come in, because you hooked me by that uh, opener. Olga marched back to the Drevlian territory with her army, laying waste to the people that the, she and her army came across. The Kievan Rus drove the remaining survivors back into their cities, and Olga led her army to Iskortstan, the city where her husband had been slain, and laid siege to the city. This siege lasted for a year without success when Olga came up with her final plan for revenge. She sent the Drevlians a message saying, Why do you persist in holding out? All your cities have surrendered to me and submitted to tribute, so that the inhabitants now cultivate their fields and their lands in peace. But you had rather die of hunger without submitting to tribute. The Drevlians responded that they would indeed submit to this tribute, but that they were afraid that Olga was still intent on avenging her husband. Olga answered that the murder of the messenger sent to Kiev, as well as the events of the feast night, had been enough to satisfy her revenge. She then asked for a small request. Give me three pigeons and three sparrows from each house. The Drevlians rejoiced at the prospect of the siege ending for so small a price as some birds, and so they did as she asked. Olga then instructed her army to attach a piece of sulfur bound with small pieces of cloth to each bird. At nightfall, Olga told her soldiers to set the pieces aflame and to release the birds, which returned to their nests in the city, subsequently setting the entire city on fire. Whoa. How did she know that would work? I don't know. That's that's like a crazy hypothetical. Like, like I can't even imagine that. It's like those videos on facebook and stuff like that where you see where a person sets up like they've got a ball and then they set up this really extravagant like obstacle course for it to go through Mm -hmm. to get into a hoop it's like it's like how the fuck did you get this to work yeah that's actually ah shoot what is that called 
It's a specific thing. Kaylee had to make one of those. Did she really? It's like an engineering. Oh yeah, thing. I guess so. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Anyways, that's that's crazy that mm-hmm. that actually worked. Though. Yeah. So as the primary chronicle tells it, there was not a house that was not consumed, and it was impossible to extinguish the flames because all the houses caught fire at once. As the people fled the burning city, Olga ordered her soldiers to catch them, killing some and giving the others to slaves as her followers. The ones left were made to pay tribute to her. Now we come to the crux of the issue. These stories seem almost too wild to be true, and that might be because it might be. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Okay. We don't really know how much of this is truth and how much is legend. The primary chronicle that I keep referring to was written 100 years after Olga's rule, and it's possible that these four revenge tales may be an amalgamation of a few different events by a few different rulers. The reasoning behind that is that in medieval sources, there is really no such concept of plagiarism. If something amazing happened over in Spain, why couldn't it happen in Kievan Rus too? So, Olga's legend is almost a reflection of the very real cultural melting pot that was happening in Europe at this time. Now, there may be some snippets of truth in the story of Olga. She was certainly a smart ruler, and she does appear in a number of primary sources at the time. So, we know for certain that a person with the name Olga did exist and was the ruler of Kiev, and who did have power in her own right, but that's about all we know for absolute certain. So, this is why you told me that I wasn't going to necessarily like this episode, because we don't know if it actually happened. Yeah. I mean, it's written down. Yeah, yeah. That was actually... The... I like to pretend that it actually <laughs> happened, though, because it's neat. This is an interesting story. Yeah. So what does the Primary Chronicle say happened to Olga after she murdered the entire tribe of Drevlians? Well, she remained regent, uh, ruler of the Kievan Rus, with the support of both her army and her people. She continued to evade marriage proposals and defended her city from siege, saving the power of the throne for her son. She traveled about her land, establishing laws and tribute from other groups, as well as trading posts, hunting grounds, boundary posts, and towns across the empire, essentially centralizing state rule. And this network would improve important to the ethnic and cultural unification of the Rus people. And her border posts began the establishment of national boundaries for the kingdom. So essentially, she kind of like created Russia and Belarus. I feel like... The end of this story is kind of like, you know, in like a 90s movie, when they win at the end of the movie, there's like a freeze frame. So let's say this, for example, this, uh, you know, this city's on fire and there's Olga celebrating with her men, fist in the air and then freeze frame. And at the bottom of the screen, it gives a little blurb of what Olga went on. (laughs) Yeah, Olga went on to. (laughs) that's yeah. that's what i feel like this uh this sort of epilogue is <laughs> oh well i have a quite a bit more to tell you about her like oh how she became a saint oh jesus okay she's a saint oh i thought this was the end but okay keep going <laughs> the primary chronicle gives no additional detail about her role as regent but it does go on to tell the story of her conversion to christianity in the 950s olga traveled to constantinople the capital of the byzantine empire to visit emperor constantine the seventh once there olga converted to christianity with the emperor's help The Primary Chronicle does not tell us why she decided to visit Constantinople, nor why she decided to convert. But it does tell us a lot about the conversion process in which she was baptized and instructed in the ways of Christianity. It records. Now, this is a quote from them, from the Primary Chronicle. Okay. The reigning emperor was named Constantine, son of Leo. Olga came before him, and when he saw that she was very fair of countenance and wise as well, the emperor wondered at her intellect. He conversed with her and remarked that she was worthy to reign with him in his city. When Olga heard his words, she replied that she was still a pagan, and that if he desired to baptize her, he should perform this function himself, otherwise she was unwilling to accept baptism. The emperor, with the assistance of the patriarch, accordingly baptized her. 
When Olga was enlightened, she rejoiced in soul and body. The patriarch who instructed her in the faith said to her, Blessed art thou among the women of Rus, for thou hast loved the light and quit the darkness. The sons of Rus shall bless thee to the last generation of thy descendants. He taught her of the doctrine of the church and instructed her in prayer and fasting, in almsgiving and the maintenance of chastity. She bowed her head, and like a sponge absorbing water, she eagerly drank in his teachings. The princess bowed before the patriarch, saying, Through thy prayers, holy father, may I be preserved from the crafts and assaults of the devil. At her baptism, she was christened Helena, after the ancient empress, mother of Constantine the Great. The patriarch then blessed and dismissed her. So that's the primary chronicle telling her, telling us about how she became a Christian. Okay. So a few things to note about this. The observation that Olga was worthy to reign with the emperor in his city suggests that the emperor was interested in marrying her. What? Everybody wants to marry Olga. She, there's she something must about been, Olga. There's something about Olga. Yeah, that's very good. While the Chronicle explains Emperor Constantine's desire to take Olga as his wife because she was fair of countenance and wise as well, it's more likely that he wanted to marry her because it would have helped him gain power over the Rus. Olga's ask for the emperor to baptize her is due to the fact that by doing so, Olga and he would then be tied by baptismal sponsorship and therefore marrying her would be spiritual incest. This marriage is sponsored by Jesus. This means that her desire to become Christian may have been genuine, but it also may have been a way to, for her to maintain political independence. After the baptism, when Constantine repeated his marriage proposal, Olga answered that she could not marry him, since church law forbade a goddaughter to marry her godfather. What? Next they're going to tell you that a sister and a brother can't be married or something, you know? Like, that's just why. <laughs> the emperor replied, Olga, you have outwitted me, and he gave her many gifts of gold, silver, silks, and various vases, and dismissed her, still calling her his daughter. Wow, man, I, I wish someone would give me a gift when I outwit them. I'm very witty. <laughs> Again, this may or may not have happened as Constantine already had a wife at the time and other sources cite different dates for Olga's baptism. It does remain true, however, that she did get baptized and upon her baptism changed her name to Helena after the saint of the same name. Olga then returned home and unsuccessfully attempted to convert her son to Christianity. The Chronicle records that her son laughed and mocked those who converted, but he did not prevent it from happening. This marked a crucial turning point for Christianity in the area, and despite the resistance of her people, Olga built churches all around her empire. Olga died from illness in 969. <laughs> she convinced her son not to leave and move the capital city until she had died, and then only three days later she did pass away. Although he disapproved of his mother's Christian beliefs, Svatoslav listened to her final request that the priest be allowed to conduct a Christian funeral without the ritual pagan burial feast. Now, what's all this about her becoming a saint? Because you may or may not remember from our Valentine's Day episode. Oh, my favorite one. There are a few things that must happen for one to be appointed to sainthood. And from what I've heard about Olga, I'm surprised that the Pope was like, oh, yeah, she's a saint. Yeah. <laughs> At the time of her death, Olga was unsuccessful in making Kievan Rus a Christian territory. However, her grandson was able to do so. The Primary Chronicle also highlights Olga's holiness in contrast to the pagans who were around during her life, and notes that her decision to convert was very significant. It claims Olga was the precursor of the Christian land, even as the dayspring precedes the sun and as the dawn precedes the day. For she shone like the moon by night, and she was radiant among the infidels like a pearl in the mire, since the people were soiled and not yet purified of their sin by holy baptism. So safe to say the author really did admire her for her conversion. 
and she was also really into bird watching, which I also love. In 1547, almost 600 years after her death, the Russian Orthodox Church named Olga a saint. Because she attempted to convert her people, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Ruthenian Greek Catholic Church, and the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church all call Olga by the honorific Estapotolis. No, Isapostolistus. Hello, my Eos. I'm so bad. I, I should, like, Google how to say these, like, how to pronounce them and, like, put the actual, like, phonetic way of saying it because I'm just butchering this. Clearly. Uh, so this word means equal to the apostles, mm. which is kind of a big deal if you're so, an apostle, right? Like, yeah. So she's equal to them. Wow. She is also a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. She is the patron saint of widows and converts, which makes sense. Um, I did try to find out if she performed any miracles or why else she was considered a saint, but I couldn't find much, only that she attempted to convert her people, she lived a holy life dedicated to God, and when she died, her body remained incorrupt even a hundred years after her death, when they then moved the relics to a different cathedral. I'll tell you the miracle she performed, starting a whole city on fire with birds. But that was before she became a Christian. Yeah, well, either way, she should have been like, hey, I'd like to bring up my miracle that I performed. Granted, it was before I was a Christian, so don't judge me too harshly, but I did do this really cool shit. <laughs> that she should have. Yeah. So, Dakota, what do you think? I thought it was interesting to a point. So, my thought about this one is that different from the previous ones where you were bored at the beginning and excited at the end. Oh, now I'm bored at the end. <laughs> yeah. Was I right? Yeah, more so. Uh, I, of course, loved all the torturous shit. You know, that was pretty cool. You know me. Um I found the, the obviously the bird thing was fascinating, and mm-hmm. I loved your hook that you opened. That you're really good at those hooks at the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, because they just really get me in, invested. I'm always disappointed when they're not as good as my pitches, but like <laughs> history isn't as good as my own imagination. Uh huh. So, yeah, so that bird thing was really cool. The ending kind of lost me because I was like, I thought we were wrapping up, and then it's like, no, we got another couple pages of what she did after and how she like converted to god and all that <laughs> stuff and like but she didn't watch passion of the christ nor yeah. did she can she even be considered a saint i mean no like she's us uh, <laughs> so i will give this 7.2 small escorts out of 10 <laughs> small escorts <laughs> yeah that's fair i Loved this episode for a number of reasons. Uh, one, she's super cool. She sounds very interesting. But also, two, the like question as to whether or not this actually happened, which mm. brings up other historical questions, like how can you trust? Like, what sources can you trust? And yeah. like, what is the is the primary chronicle actually legit? And like, you know, all the stuff that happened. It, it's just very to me exciting, and I can't eloquate it right now. I'm not able to explain why it's exciting to me. So I was excited. Some people will get it. Nah, well, I don't know if they will because I'm not making much sense here. But it was exciting to me because of that. But then all of the other historical things that I found mm. afterwards made it more exciting. For well, I'm me. very happy for you and whoever enjoyed this. And it was alright. You enjoyed it. I did. It was alright. It was alright. It was better than alright. It was great. <laughs> Well, that's all we have for this week. We'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us. If you enjoyed listening to what we had to say, please download our podcast from wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review, or tell your friends about us, because indie podcasts really do grow through word of mouth. 
If you want to stay in contact or see behind-the-scenes action, you can follow us on Instagram at The Reluctant Historian or on Facebook under The Reluctant Historian Podcast or leave us a tip at buymeacoffee.com slash thehistorian. We're sellouts now. You can also shoot us an email with future show ideas or corrections you may have noted to thereluctanthistorian at gmail.com. So, we'll see you next week. Same time, same place. And on that day, Olga, Queen of the Ruse, invented hardcore birdwatching. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Erickson, host of The Open Highway. You know, I've had some incredible adventures in my life, and along the way I've learned a little bit about everything, which, to be honest with you, is just enough to get me into trouble. But I bring that with me when I sit down with guests from the worlds of politics, news, science, current events, entertainment, and more. The Open Highway with Eric Erickson. Join me on The Open Highway, and let's have a conversation. Find it wherever you get your favorite podcasts.